just joining us, we are going through every book of the Bible. We're doing a systematic study of the books of the Bible, and we're all the way at the book of Philemon. So if you want to turn to that one little chapter book, Philemon. Um, we have some notes on the tables. If you, if you want to take a, a note, a page of notes, those are some general overview of the book. Uh, we have one, ch- if you're watching from home, in the notes section of your YouTube video there, I have these notes there as well, so you can follow along. But we have one chapter. We have 25 verses. We have 430 words. So this is the briefest of all of Paul's epistles, all right? Um, and you see clearly the author is Paul, first verse, right? Paul a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He attributes it to himself there. It's written during his first imprisonment in Rome. They read over, you read about that in Acts chapter 28. Um, and somebody said one time, if I were to covet any honor of authorship, it would be this, that some letters of mine might be found in the desks of my friends when their life struggle is ended. Some guy said that would be the greatest thing for me to somebody to find a letter I wrote them in their desk or in their drawer somewhere. And of all Paul's private correspondence, this is the only example that's been preserved. This is not necessarily to the head of a church, uh, though Philemon could have been a pastor, but there's a very private, intimate letter here that we get a glimpse of that the Lord saved uh, in the book of Philemon. And some of our characters, Philemon... (laughs) was a key member of the church in Colossae. He's possibly an elder. Some suspect he could have been a pastor there. If you look at verse 2, you see it says, um, in verse 2, he mentions to Philemon the church in his house. So the church was meeting in his house. Verse 5, he says, I'm hearing of thy love and faith which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints. So he clearly was ministering to a lot of people. And in verse 7, Uh, He says, the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. So that could be just, he was a good guy in a congregation, just being a blessing to people. Or he could have had some type of authority where he maybe had responsibility for some people in a church setting and was a blessing to them. So at the very least, Philemon was a good brother. At the very most, Philemon could have been an elder or a pastor in a church. And you'll see different people have different opinions on that. You can make your own decision. Onesimus is the other big character. So we got, we got Philemon, right? Philemon's one character, all right? And then we got Onesimus is another character, right? And Onesimus is basically a runaway servant of Philemon. Uh, and Paul leads him to Christ in jail. So he runs away from his master. He steals from his master, who is Philemon, right? Philemon's his master, or his, 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 yeah, his master, and Onesimus is the servant. And he runs away from him. You look at verse number 10. It says right there, I beseech thee, there, the, I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds. So they're in jail together in Rome, and Paul does what you're supposed to do when you're around somebody. He tries to witness to him, and he gets saved. So... Look at, and who does Paul represent in here? So Paul is the next character. There's only three characters. And in Paul is the prisoner of Jesus Christ. See how it says there in the first verse? Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Now that's interesting. He writes that while he's a prisoner in Rome. (laughs) Now notice he doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of Rome. He says, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Your circumstances don't really determine your vocation. Right? He was physically a prisoner of Rome, but that's not how he identified himself. He identified himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He made himself a bond slave. He made himself a servant to Christ. Um, Somebody said this about this situation. They said, They were not shackles which self had riveted, but a chain with which Christ had invested him. Thus they were a badge of office. So this guy is saying, you know, Paul didn't identify, he didn't think about the chains the Romans put on him. He didn't care about those. He had given himself bonds of love. It was Christ that had enlisted him in the service. And he saw himself as a servant of Christ. He wore those chains like a badge of honor. Oh, for that type of perspective. (laughs) For you to be going through something to be able to say, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ through all of it. That's that's tremendous. And look at verse number 9. He says this about himself. Yet for love's sake, I rather beseech thee, being such an one as Paul the aged. Paul the aged. That is the seventh step 
of spiritual growth in the Bible. The Bible lists seven steps of spiritual growth throughout the scriptures, and the aged is the last one. He mentions first, he mentions babes, if you're taking notes. If you're looking at verses like 1 Peter 2.2 2 or 1 Corinthians 3.1, it mentions babes. You know what babes are? Babes are immature believers that can only handle milk. They can't handle meat. They can't handle anything tough that needs to be chewed and digested. You could be saved for 10 years and still be a babe in Christ. If you've never matured, if you never got over yourself, if you still need to be burped and have your diaper changed spiritually, you're still a babe. And babes need milk. That's your first level of spiritual growth. The second level is the Bible talks about little children. Little children. John 13, Jesus talks about little children, little children. Little children lack understanding, right? You cannot explain an abstract concept to a two-year-old, right? You want to play peekaboo with a six-month-old, they'll get a thrill. Play peekaboo with a teenager, they're going to look like you're nuts. All right, they're going to be like, okay, boomer, right? That's all it's going to be. So you got to be understanding where you are. Little children are those believers that just can't understand those deeper things of God anymore or yet. Right, third level, or the third stage is children. Why did I space this so close? Children, children. Uh, Ephesians 4 talks about be children, not tossed about with every wind of doctrine. Children are those believers that are starting to understand. They're starting to get stable, right? Your children are little children, your one or two or three-year-olds. You know what? You're just teaching them to obey. You're teaching them to understand mommy and daddy are the authority. But when they start to get to be seven, eight, nine, they can process some things. Maybe you explain why to that child because they can understand things to get stable. Then the next level is, in, um, is young men. These are all in your Bible. You could run these references. Young men. 1 John 2.13 and Proverbs 20, 29 talks about young men. Young men are believers that are developing strength. They're learning how to overcome. You might be an older lady or you might be an older guy, but you're still maybe just a young man spiritually. If you're just starting to apply the Bible and get some strength and overcome, the Bible says you're a young man. Next level is uh, in still in 1 John. These are fathers. 1 John 2 talks about fathers. Fathers are those believers that have gained experience. They know God can be trusted. You know, you talk to your son, you talk to your daughter, you've gone through some life, you could tell them from experience, that's not the way to go, or that is the way to go. How? Because look at the scars I got. Look at the victories I got. I've got some experience. That's the role of fathers. We have many fathers in this place. Not just physical fathers. We've got fathers in the faith in here. People that have walked with God a little bit, that have gained some experience of how God works and who He is. You need both. You need the young men in a church because you need that zeal and that fire and that passion. And you need some fathers, some guys that can say, whoa, 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 don't take that turn so fast. Uh, there's a blind spot up ahead. Let me tell you what you need to do, right? You need both. Then you got 1 Peter 5.1 talks about elders. Elders. Elders are those believers that have the responsibility now of taking care of somebody else, of maybe feeding somebody else. That's a level of spiritual growth. These are levels of spiritual growth from babes who need to be fed and burped and are immature and selfish and carnal and cry and whine. Now we're up to elders who now feed other people. And the last one is Paul. He mentions Paul, the aged. The aged. And here's Paul, the aged, able to look back on what the Lord did through him. That's your final level of spiritual growth. You could step back in your rocking chair and you could just recount all the goodness of God, all the mercy of God. You just have stories to tell. You're not out there on the street anymore. You're not out there street preaching anymore. Your body's not handling it, but you could talk about the days of old. You could talk about, you know, I remember when Mel Sabaka was up in years. He wasn't going out and doing the great revivals anymore, but every time he talked, you sure listened. Because he had stories of walking with God. You wanted just a little, you wanted some of those drops to drop on you. Amen. And Paul is the agent here. He's like, I've lived a long time. I've walked with God. I know how he works. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to reconcile Onesimus back to his master Philemon. 
He's trying to send him back to his master on good terms and reconcile his broken relationship. Onesimus has run away and robbed from him. And here's what he does in Philemon's 14, 17. The first thing he does is he writes a letter to intercede for Onesimus. He says in verse 14, But without thy mind would I do nothing, that thy benefit should not be as it were of necessity, but willingly. For perhaps he therefore departed for a season, that thou shouldest receive him forever. Not now as a servant, but above a servant, a brother beloved, especially to me. But how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If thou count me therefore a partner, receive him as myself. And he writes that letter. And if you want to just hold your place there and look at Colossians, he doesn't just write the letter. He writes the letter to Philemon, the offended party. And then he commends Onesimus to the whole church. <laughs> he tells the whole church about him. That he's coming back. Look at Colossians 4. Again, Philemon, Onesimus, they're from, that, they're from Colossae. Philemon was in the church in Colossae. And he says in four, uh, Colossians 4, 7, he says, All my state shall Tychicus declare unto you, who is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that he might know your estate and comfort your hearts. So he sends Tychicus to Colossae, and look who he sends with him. Verse 9. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They shall make known unto you all things which are done here. So he commends Onesimus to the brethren. He says, he's a new creature. He's one of us now. Amen. I hope you're one of us now. Uh -huh, come on in. The water is fine. Right? You know, it's just, everybody says, oh, you guys are a cult. No, you should see what a cult looks like. No, I'm kidding. Right? But we don't do the blood. Don't worry, guys. We don't do the. We don't make. If somebody hands you Kool Aid tonight, don't drink it. All right. So uh, we don't do that stuff. Right. We're not. We're just a bunch of people saved by grace who love God and want to see what He says in His Word. That's all. You know, the doors are unlocked, and anybody can leave any time they want. But you know what? He says, "Hey, Onesimus is one of us now," and that's a good lesson. A new creature. A new creature. So the key word is, if you will go back to Philemon, is receive. That's the key word. Receive. <laughs> receive. He says it three times, and each time he adds more emphasis, and he says it louder. See, in verse 12, he says, Receive him that is mine own bowels. See, this guy is mine. I led this guy to Christ. This guy's my convert. Receive him. Take him in. Verse 15, For perhaps he therefore departed for a season that thou shouldest receive him forever. Verse 17, If thou count me therefore a partner, receive him as myself. You see how that, you see how that's growing in intensity? Receive mine, receive him forever, receive him as myself, receive him as if I, Paul the aged, came to you. That's really laying the emphasis on. Amen. Now, Philippians 1.18 is the, uh, Philippians, Philemon 18, there's one chapter, is to me the key verse of the whole book. Because this verse right here is a beautiful picture of Christ interceding to the Father for us like Paul is interceding to Philemon for Onesimus. Look what he says here, and just picture Jesus Christ saying this for you. Amen. If he hath wronged thee, or oweth thee aught, put that on mine account. Woo! Wow, it gets you choked up just thinking about that. Amen. You deserve to go to hell, and the father, son looks at the father and says, He called upon me, Father. If he owes you anything, I'll pay for it. That's amazing. That's amazing, right? So the message is the practice of Christian forgiveness enforced and illustrated, and Jesus Christ is pictured as our intercessor because that's what we see in Paul, and that's what the whole letter is about. So the breakdown is one chapter. You see it there. Verses 1 to 3 is the greeting. Verses 4 to 7 is the commendation. Verses 8 to 21 is the intercession. And verses 22 to 25 is the salutation and conclusion. So it's a very practical book if you want to go to verse 1. And what I'm going to do is just give you um, some Bible pictures here and some truths in this book. And I want you to realize, we're at the end of the church epistles now. So, and I want you to get this. The last book written to the New Testament church, because Hebrews is going to be a pivot now after this, is all about how we're supposed to treat one another. That's the whole book is about that. How are we supposed to treat one another? And that's the focus I want to take as we break it apart. What does it say about how we're supposed to treat one another 
And that's what God leaves the church with. Not some grand doctrine of his coming or some grand doctrine about, you know, future things or eschatology or all that ology stuff I don't understand. The last thing he leaves the church with is, here's how one brother is supposed to treat another brother. And I think that's very instructive for us tonight. I got a lot out of this. It blessed my heart. I hope it's a blessing to you. So let's jump in in the first section, okay? Verses 1 to 3. Verses 1 to 3. In verses 1 to 3, Paul starts with how we're related to each other, right? Verses 1 to 3 is how we're, I'll say this, how we're related you want to see some, some relationships you have in this place? Let's look at verse 1. He says, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother. Notice the first thing he says is, we're family. Right? Timothy, our brother. That's the first thing you got to get. You see the people in this room that you know are saved? We're brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why we call each other brother and sister, to remind our stupid selves that we're family. Amen. Paul says, Timothy, our brother, that's the first thing you have to understand, that that person that sits across from you, that's washed in the blood, he may be totally different than you, she may be totally different than you, but you got one thing in common that's the most important thing of all. He's your brother, she's your sister, you're related, you got the same bloodline. You got to get that first. Then he says, unto Philemon, our dearly beloved the second thing is, he calls Philemon dearly beloved. You know why? We're supposed to love each other. You don't always love your family, even if you're related. He says, you're not just related. You're supposed to be special to each other. You're supposed to be dear to each other. Third thing, verse 1. And fellow laborer. We're supposed to be working together. We're on the same team. You know what's really annoying? Well, my daughter goes up for a rebound and someone on her own team is pulling out of her hand. You know what you scream? Same, same, same. You know what you're supposed to be doing here, guys? We're not supposed to be fighting each other for anything. We're on the same team. Same, same, same. We're on the same team. We're supposed to work together. We're fellow laborers. Fourthly, it's all right there. Verse 2. And to our beloved Aphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier. We're family we're dearly beloved, we're fellow laborers, and we're fellow soldiers. We're supposed to be fighting together. We're supposed to have the same enemy out there, not in here. We're not supposed to be fighting each other. We're supposed to be fighting together. That's how we're related to each other. We're family who's supposed to be special, who's supposed to be working together and fighting that common enemy out there, the world, the flesh, and the devil, not each other. That good start? That's a good start, I think. All right. Let's keep going here. Verses 4 to 7. He says in verses 4 to 7, again, I just find it very instructive. You know, you know what will really open up your eyes about the Bible and you'll really start to get that God wrote it? When you start to not just see how amazing the books are, but how the way the books are laid out and the order in which they appear, they tell a story and they have a message. I mean, Genesis was not the first book written, but God put it first in his Bible because it's the book of beginnings. Then he ends with a guy dead in a coffin, right? Because what God starts in Genesis, sin leads to death. And what's the next book? Exodus, which is somebody getting delivered or escaped out of something, right? And then you got this book of, you just keep, you can go through all the books. Let's not do it again. Genesis, right? Reteach all that stuff. But the books tell a story. So why is it that the last book written to a church is about how you treat each other. Why? Because didn't Jesus say in the upper room, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one toward another. Right? If you treat each other the right way, the world's going to know who you are. And that's the last thing he leaves us. So we're going to hammer this in here. Good tonight. So the second thing he shows us is how we should relate to each other. The first section is how we're related. And the second section is how we should relate. See verse 4? I thank my God making mention of thee always in my prayers. You know what the first thing you should be doing for your family, for your fellow soldiers, for your fellow laborers, for those people that are special to you? We should always be praying for each other. That's the first way we should relate to each other. If you've got a problem with somebody or you see a problem in somebody's life, why don't you go to God before going to man? Amen. 
Before you pick up that phone and send that text and start that little gossip line, why don't you get on God's line and get a hold of God and say, Lord, how do I help this brother or sister in this situation before you raise Cain and start chirping all over the church house? Right? That would be a good thing. That would make everybody better if you would go to God first before going to somebody else and starting some kind of bad stuff going on. The Bible commands us in James 5.16 to pray one for another. He says, and let me get it right, pray one for another. <laughs> he actually says those words like a command. <laughs> that means you should pray one for another. How are you doing with that? You praying for me? You praying for the person across the room for you? Across the table from you? How are they going to get better if you're not praying for them? How's God going to get the increase if you're not watering it with the tears of your prayers? Right? That's the first thing he says. Pray. Our pattern is Paul. And what did Paul constantly do? We've read every one of his letters now. Almost every letter except, like, I think one. He's asking for people to pray for him, and he's praying for them as well. Why? Because that's the first way we should relate to one another. We should be interceding for each other and praying for one another. Second thing, and this one's going to rub your sensibilities the wrong way because we don't do this a lot. I think we would agree that we need to, yes, one, we need to pray. That's first, right? But let me give you two. Two might shock your world. <clears throat> we should praise each other for godly qualities and behavior. We don't like that because I'm going to, you know... I'm going to lift them up like Lucifer. Well, before you do that, why don't you see what the Bible says in verse 5. He says, Hearing of thy love and faith which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints. You know what he's doing? He's complimenting them. He's saying, Brother, we're hearing about your, your good charity towards the brethren. We're hearing about your love. We're hearing about your faith. You're doing a good job there. I'm hearing about it. You're doing such a good job that it's getting back to me over here in jail. That's a commendation. That's a little bit of praise. You know why you serve the Lord? Why do you serve God? It's, well, because he loved me. I know because he loved you. I know. That's why. But you know what you're waiting to hear? That judgment seat of Christ. Forget the crowns. Those will be cool. Forget the, the thrones. Those will be amazing. You just want to hear God say, well done. Amen. Don't you? Amen. You guys to like when a teacher said, good job. Or maybe your dad said, good job. Or somebody said, good job. You know, you want somebody to say, good job. Come off the stage or off the field. You don't want somebody to say, what was that? You want to say, that was a good job, son. That was a good job, honey. That was good work. Good try. Good, good everything. God's going to say, well done. That's like the motivating force behind everything we do just to please the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And you know what happens here? Paul's saying, well done, Philemon. You did a good job. The Spirit of God inspires Paul to tell Philemon, well done, Philemon. I'm hearing you're doing a good job. I'm hearing you, you love it and having faith toward all those saints. That's a blessing. Can I ask you this? What spirit are ye of that you won't bless a brother like Paul did Philemon. We just, why are we so quick to critique, but slow, so slow to commend? Man, when that kid doesn't clean his room the right way or looks sideways, we are ready with the bazooka and we're ready to blow their face off with our criticisms and our critiques and our Bible verses. How about, good job, son. I know you did the best you could. Good try. Good this. Good. Well done, you know. I walked in today and Christian's eating tuna fish. I said, you're a good kid, Christian. You're, you're doing a good job. You know, you're doing, I, I couldn't do the stuff you're doing. You know, I just wanted to say that to you. And he just kept eating and looked at me like he always looks at me because I'm strange, right? But, you know, because I've had this book on my mind that I'm wondering, how much have I missed this? You know, how much am I quick to criticize? Well, this one's not walking right and that one's not walking right. And you hear all the garbage in people's lives and all you see is the negative. And God says right here, hey, good job, Philemon. It's okay if you tell somebody, that was a good job on that message, brother. That was a good job putting those tracks together, sister. There's nothing wrong with that. I think that's spiritual. Because I see the Holy Spirit doing it here between Paul and Philemon. And I know the Holy Spirit's provoking me to get that commendation from God. You say, well, then they're going to get puffed up. Listen, man, they're going to get puffed up whether you say something or not. If their heart is wrong, you say nothing. They're still saying it to themselves. That was a great message. That was a great job you did. They're going to say it to themselves. Hey, you can say it. <laughs> nothing wrong with saying it because the world's going to say it to them. The world's going to open their arms and say, come here. We love you. We want you for our own. Hey, we should be loving on people more than the world does, especially with our kids. 
especially with our kids, man. If our kids are always under the thumb, guess what? I know some people that won't put them under the thumb. I know some people that'll open up their arms and open up their cars and open up their lives and just open up to them. We should be loving them more than anybody else. Amen? So I don't want to be so quick to critique and so slow to commend. Let's look at the next thing he says to do. Verse 6. So he says, pray for each other, praise each other, and then provoke each other. Provoke each other. Look at verse 6. He says, that the communication of thy faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in thy love, because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. Finally, we should provoke one another unto love and good works. You know, go uh, hold your place there, and you should be right. The next book over should be Hebrews. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. <clears throat> Hebrews 10, 24. Hebrews 10, 24. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. We're supposed to kind of push each other to do right. Come on, brother, let's, let's go. Let's, let's, let's go to church today. Let's, let's go out on the street today. Let's, let's get to that. Let's go to youth group today. Let's, let's do something good today. Let's, let's pray today. Let's do something today, man. We, we should be, and it's a fine line because you don't want to be that annoying jerk, you know, that's holier than thou and is always kicking people in the pants to do something, but a little like, come on, let's go. I'm sure when Jason has a bad game, which I'm sure never happens, right? They don't call you Swiss Jason or anything like that. Right. But I'm sure when a couple of goals go through the net and you little get down, I'm sure dad's over there like, come on, man, let's go. Let's get back at it. Let's not give up. I know my daughter the other day, she missed a free throw. She looks at me from the stands. You know, I get the look. I'm like, I start going like this. I'm like, focus, concentrate. Because she gives me the look like the world is falling down, like I missed one free throw. You know, I'm like, you know, please don't tell her I said this story, but she's going to listen to it later because she's helped. But you know what? I just, let's go. Let's keep going. That's provoking to love and good works. There's nothing wrong with that. We should encourage one another. Keep going, brother. Don't stop believing. Have faith. God's still with you. God still loves you. It's going to be okay. Lord's coming. Lord's coming. Lord's going to, it's, it's going to be all right. That's provoking to love and good works. We, we often push each other to do wrong. Let's push each other to do right, right? Push each other to do right, you know? You know, you've been around the dojang, right? You push each other. You push each other to, you know, you, you're doing that extra whatever set of that 100 kicks you got to do or something like that, and your hips are bleeding and you're dying and you're screaming. And you know what happens? You know, you just, you're, you're sabanim or you're, 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 what do they call them in your guy? What do they call them? We call them sabanim. Kyoshinim, right? They, they kind of like, he's there to provoke you to do good, you know? Not to just bash you, but to kind of just coach you. It's just a little bit of coaching, you know, just to help each other out a little bit. Look at verse 6. Go back to Philemon. Too many sports analogies, I know, sorry. Um, Philemon 6. Look what he says, he says, the communication of thy faith. He says, hey, Paul, Paul says, I'm provoking you. Here's what you could do. Hey, Philemon, you could bring God glory by just acknowledging all the good things he's done in your life. He's saying, here's what you can do, Philemon. Everybody could do that. And then in verse 7, he says, I'm going to provoke you by reminding you what you've already done right. He says, Philemon, you've done good. You've refreshed people. And look what more you could do. That's provoking. Like, look what God used you to do here, Philemon. Guess what? You could do more. You notice all these actions, all these things that he's telling us to do for each other. Pray, praise, provoke. Besides just starting with P, I got another P word. They're all positive. None of them are negative. None of them beat each other down because we're here to help each other, not hurt each other. We get hurt out there. We're supposed to be a hospital in here, triage in here. We've learned that from our days in Staten Island. This place is a hospital. You come in after a long day of work. The world's kicked your teeth in. You, you st your world's going crazy. You come into the church house with your Bible. Maybe your heart's a little heavy today. You don't need somebody getting on you. You need somebody lifting you up and encouraging you. The Bible says a foolish woman plucks her house down, but a wise woman builds it up. So we're supposed to be building each other up, edifying. Let all things be done unto edification, which is building something up. Now, let's keep going. Verses 8 to 21. All right? Verses 8 to 21 
or how we're supposed to intercede for each other. Now God goes in a little deeper on that prayer life and that attitude. He teaches us how to intercede for each other. Intercede, right? Okay? In football, an interception is something Patrick Mahomes doesn't throw. I mean, no, it is an interception is when someone gets in between you and your pass, right? Intercepted. In life, an interruption is when someone gets in between your conversation, right? You're going one way, someone interrupts you. As Christians, intercession is when you get between another brother and God. You get between another brother or sister and God, and you go to God on behalf of that brother or sister, and you intercede for that brother or sister. And I want you to see this letter, Philemon, the heart of the letter. What the whole letter's about is Paul interceding for Onesimus. He got between Philemon and Onesimus. He interceded between these two to help bring Onesimus back to Philemon. And a Christian is supposed to bring other Christians to God and get between other Christians and God and other people and God and pray in that person's stead and for that person. That's what intercession is. So how do we do that? What attitude should we have? It's all right there in your verses. If you'd search it out, it's right there. I'll show you the first thing in verse 8. You're going to intercede for somebody else? You're going to go to God for somebody else? Verse 8 and 9. Wherefore, I, though I might be much bold in Christ to enjoin thee in that which is convenient, yet for love's sake I rather beseech thee. First thing is we should always intercede for love's sake. Right? For love's sake. If it ain't love, man, what are you doing it for? <laughs> he says, I beseech thee for love's sake. Hey, why did Jesus go to the cross? I thought it said, right, Chris, for God so loved the world. If you watched that last video, right, for God so loved the world, John 3.16. How about 1 John 3.16? You know that verse? Why don't you flip over to that verse? Somebody said you got to watch the 316s in your Bible. Sometimes the 316s are really, really good verses. And uh, 316, he says this. <clears throat> Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. We say amen to that? Amen. You, you get that, right? Like he laid down his life for you. Like let them trample, spit upon, whip him, bruise him, you know, throw him on a cross and nail him to a stick. Like... He laid down his life for us, and the period isn't there. There's a colon there, the two dots, which means God's going to expand the thought. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. It's a tough verse, because he's comparing it to what Christ did on the cross. I mean, Christ didn't just, you know, give us five bucks on the cross. He laid down his life on the cross. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So that same sacrifice that Christ made, that same level of demotion, devotion and commitment, we should be demonstrating toward each other. I know it's quiet. <laughs> I know it's quiet because I don't know how much I've apprehended that. That's some serious talk right there. I mean, he's saying what should motivate us to intercede for others is the same love that motivated Christ to intercede for us. That's just Bible 101, but it seems so foreign, but that's what God's saying. So that's the first thing. Look at verse 14. Here's the second thing. <clears throat> first thing he says, let's do it for love's sake. And then 14 he says, but without thy mind would I do nothing. The second, we should intercede in unity with God and each other. There should be a unity there. Paul didn't want to hurt his fellowship with Philemon. He could have forced Philemon. He could have told Philemon, listen, bucko, I'm Paul the aged. You owe me your life. You owe me your soul. Everything you know about God, I taught you. So suck it up, take Bonesimus back, and quit your complaining. He could have done it that way. He just said, listen, I don't, want to, I don't want to step on your toes. I don't want to break fellowship. I don't want to disturb our, our unity. So I'm asking you to consider this. Right? There was a unity he was trying to keep there. You know, Jesus, when he interceded for us, he didn't do anything contrary to the Father's will. 
When he intercedes for us, even though God should have sent us to hell, Jesus Christ intercedes for us, and he somehow didn't break his fellowship with the Father, but still was able to have mercy on us. There was a unity there among the Godhead, a unity there between Father and Son. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. You know, unity is a big thing. Uh, unity is not we all say the same thing, we all dress the same way, we all think the same way. You know, we're all Yankee fans. Like that's, I mean, we could pray for that, but that's, that's, not, you know, that's not what it is. It's that we have the same direction, the same focus, the same heart. In Ephesians 4.1, the Bible says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, <clears throat> with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering and forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So yes, we're not supposed to break our unity with the Father, but we should also be maintaining unity in here. That's a hard thing to do, because everybody's different in here. Everybody's coming from different perspectives and different backgrounds and different experiences, have different heartaches, have different needs. How in the world do you keep everybody on the same page? Whew, that's only the Spirit of God can do that. But we've got to maintain a lowly attitude, verse 2, a meekness, a forbearance. Why? So that we can endeavor means to try really hard. So we could try really hard to make it possible for there to be unity in this place. So we're not biting and devouring one another, because that's what your flesh wants to do. Just wants to tear each other apart. The devil doesn't have to tear this place apart. You'll tear this place apart if you let your flesh get a hold of things. You don't have to worry about the devil. You'll destroy this church on your own if you just let your flesh run your life. So you guys got to keep that flesh down, keep that pride down, so God can keep the unity in this place. Right? Look at verse 17. Go back to Philemon and let's look at verse 17. So intercede in love, intercede in unity, or for unity, and intercede sacrificially. Watch this. 17. We should intercede sacrificially like Christ does for us. If thou count me therefore a partner, receive him as myself. If he hath wronged thee, or oweth thee aught, put that on mine account. I, Paul, have written it with mine own hand. I will repay it, albeit I do not say to thee how thou owest unto me, even thine own self besides. So Paul was willing to take Onesimus' offenses upon himself and pay Philemon back for them. That's how badly he wanted to reconcile these two back to themselves. Now think about it. Jesus Christ Delivered was delivered for our offenses. <laughs> Romans 4.25 says he was delivered for our offenses. He wanted to reconcile us to God so badly that he took all those offenses upon himself and said, I will repay it. Put that on my account. That means we should be willing to give of ourselves for the brethren. We should be willing to spend and be spent for others so that they can get closer to God. You can't just sit in your chair and expect people to genuflect at your presence because you got such a nice halo, right? You've got to be willing to get down and wash somebody's feet if you want to be chief among the brethren, right? He said, whosoever is chief among you, let him be your servant. And that means taking the dirt, taking the garbage, taking, the, the, taking all that gunk, taking it upon yourself, being willing to sacrifice. Why? So somebody might get closer to God. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. I didn't say you'd like it, but that's just what it says. We don't want to sacrifice. I want to say amen to that sentiment, but I don't want to pay the sacrifice. And if you're going to reconcile somebody to God, there may be some junk you have to just swallow, let go, overlook, step behind, just cast behind your back. Why? So that they can get closer to the Lord. And then finally, verse 21. He says... Having confidence in thy obedience, I wrote unto thee, knowing that thou wilt also do more than I say. Finally, you intercede with confidence, with assurance, with courage, with certainty. Paul says right there, 
I got confidence in you, Philemon, that you're going to do above and beyond what I'm asking of you. Go to 1 John chapter 5. If you intercede for somebody, if you beseech God for somebody, if you do it with the right heart attitude, love, if you do it with the right method, unity, if you do it with the right, you know, giving spirit sacrificially, you know what you could do that in, that intercession, you could have confidence that God will do above and beyond what you ask or think. He says in 1 John chapter 5, say, but I didn't see it yet. I know your brain's small and you don't see too far ahead, but God's like, those words didn't fall to the ground that you, pr you prayed and interceded for that person. 1 John 5, 14 says, and this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And that if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. Wow. Could you imagine believing that verse the next time you bow your heart to pray? Say, Lord, I'm praying for cousin so-and-so, sister so-and-so, co-worker so-and-so, that the gospel would get to them and their heart would be receptive to the truth. Is that in the will of God? Yes. Oop. I could have confidence God's going to do that somehow, some way. Lord, I'm praying you can get me closer to you. Give me victory over this sin. Help me do this. Help me do that. I want to be more consecrated. Does God want us to come to the knowledge of the truth? Yes, I could pray those prayers in confidence. Lord, I'm praying for this brother or sister that's going through something, and I'm interceding that they might be found perfect and complete and stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. That's in the Bible, that prayer. Epaphras prayed that for the people at Colossae. You think God's not going to answer that prayer? Amen. See, but I didn't see it yet. You may never see it. That doesn't mean God didn't do it. You say, what is that? It's that four-letter F word. Five letters. Faith. <laughs> faith. It's faith. We think faith is like, I believe I can walk on the water. No, faith is, Lord, I don't see what you're doing, but I know you're doing something. <laughs> That's faith. <laughs> you know, I had this girl in my Christian club who was the president going, you know, well, what happens when you pray for something that's reasonable and God doesn't give it to you? I said, faith isn't like believing like God's a genie that's going to give you everything you believe he's going to give you. Faith is when you don't understand what God is doing, you still trust him. Amen. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. That's faith to me. At least that's what I think faith is. When we cannot trust his hand and we can trust his heart, that's faith. Not like, oh, is my faith big enough to move a mountain? No, no, no. Is my faith big enough to believe God when the mountain obscures the sun? That's faith. When the sun isn't shining, do I still know the sun is behind the clouds, still keeping everything living? That's faith, right? And God promised us what? He would do exceeding abundantly above all the way ask or think. So there's the confidence. So go back to Philemon. Let's finish this up here. We're almost done. I know you think the short ones will be short, but it just never works out that way. When I get to 2 John, maybe it'll be a 15-minute message. I don't know. But, <clears throat> but Philemon closes with what we should desire. The book ends very similar to how it started. It starts with how we're related. Then it talks about how we should relate. Then it talks about how we should intercede. And then finally it ends with what should we want? Like what should our heart be? Verse 22, but with all prepare me also a lodging. You know what Paul wanted? First thing he wanted, he wanted their presence. He says, prepare me a lodging. He wanted to be with them. He wanted to see his brothers. That's a good thing. <laughs> we should want to be around each other. <laughs> the Bible says in Romans 1.11 that Paul told the Romans, I long to see you. Do you have any of that? Does something inside you like lift up when you see the brethren on a Sunday morning or Thursday night or bump into them in a store? Do you get that witness? I get that witness. I mean, I don't get a lot of witness, but I get that witness. I'd rather be around you than other people, right? That's, that's the Spirit of God just bearing witness. If, you're if you enjoy spending more time with lost people than saved people, days are something wrong with your Christianity. I mean, we need to just be around lost people. I know we got to witness and be a good testimony. We can insulate, not isolate. I get it. But if you enjoy being around depraved, lost sinners, talking about filth and hooking up and all that garbage, if you enjoy being around that more than people that sing the songs of Zion and walk in with a smile on their face, I would check your Christianity because you might have sprung a leak somewhere. 
I'm, I'm just, I love you to death, but I'm telling you the God's truth, that you should want to be around the brethren. Paul wanted to be around them. What's he thinking about at the end of his life? We read it a few weeks ago. What does he tell Timothy? Do thy diligence to come shortly unto, the, unto me. His last words are, Timothy, I'd like to see you before I die. What is that? That's the Spirit of God. That's what the Spirit of God wants. Wants to have you around the brethren. And so much the more as you see the day approaching, right? We should desire to be with our brethren. Do I need to turn to Hebrews 10.25? You want to turn there? It's just across the page or a few pages. Maybe we need to look at this verse again. Hebrews 10.25 says this. <clears throat> Not forsaking, I mean, I mean, let me go to the Greek on this one. No, I think I got this in the English. Hold on. Let me see if I understand this. All right, let me get this one down. All right. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. I got that. I'm decoding. I'm using context clues. I think I got what this is about. Okay. As the manner of some is. So some people do that. They just think, you know, church is like, you know, something to fill the day when you don't have breakfast that day or brunch with your third cousin to go to, right? Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. How do you exhort somebody you never see? You got to be around each other to exhort one another, provoke one another, right? You know what my whole thing is with all these lunches and meeting? I just want us to be around each other more. I think it's needful. I won't overkill it. I know you got busy lives. I got a busy life too. I feel you. But I think once a month is not a hard thing to do to just get around a meal and just be able to sit together for breakfast or for for lunch, you know, once a month. I think that's, that's reasonable. I think we need to do more of that. I think just being around each other more and more, I think that iron will sharpen iron. Amen. I think you say, what's the plan? I don't have a plan. Just bring your pasta fazula, bring whatever you want to bring. We'll stick it on a sterno and we'll eat it and we'll see what God does with that. Amen. Right? I think God said that things happen when you're around each other. I think good things will happen when we're around each other. And it'll be, God will get all the glory because there's no plan, no design, no orchestrated program, <laughs> no talking points for the lay at your table. You know what my school did recently? It was a nice gesture. And my principal, if you watch this ever, please don't fire me. But <clears throat> they got us all these vouchers to go walk down Newdorp Lane and Staten Island. Some of you like, Newdorp Lane, <laughs> Staten Island, and get bubble tea. And at first I was like, I'm going to go get bubble tea. You know, I'm driving a Prius and I'm getting bubble tea. I really, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, and so I'm like, and he matched us up with, all these, with other people. So I was matched up with the secretary. He's a really nice lady. But I've said like seven words to her in 15 years, you know, just friendly hellos and goodbye. And we were going to go on a gratitude walk. And we had to carve out some time with our bubble tea buddy and go on a gratitude walk. And they gave us a script. They gave us things to talk about on the gratitude walk because I forgot how to talk to a human being. I was just, you know, <laughs> how is your day? You know, I didn't know what to do. So I had a script. So, but it was nice. But that, that was like the world trying to just orchestrate what happens so naturally among the brethren. Do you need a script at the next potluck lunch or the next men's meeting? You know, okay, first ask how the family's doing, then comment about self, then segue to verse, then close. No, I mean, it's just like, it's just organic, right? And I think if we're just together with the right heart attitude, just being together, the Spirit of God doesn't need a gratitude walk or talking points or a little card to show you what to say. I think it'll just bring forth good fruit to God. And we should want that. The Bible says we know that we have passed from death unto life, because we love the brethren. He that loveth not the, his brother abideth in death. Why are you hanging out in the old thoughts? Come into the sunshine. So the first thing was Paul wanted their presence. Go back to, uh, to Philemon. I'm hurrying here. Here's the second thing he wanted. He says, But withal prepare me also a lodging, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be given unto you. Paul wanted their prayers. He says, through your prayers, I trust. He said that to the Philippians too. He said, 
I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of God. Paul trusted that the Philippians praying for him would get him delivered. He wanted the prayers of the saints. Do you? I covet your prayers. I do. I covet your prayers. If you don't pray for me, I will probably fall apart. No, I, I just probably will fall apart. Uh, God says the fervent prayer of a righteous, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. It does a lot. You do a lot for each other to just pray for each other. So Paul was like, yo, fill up the tank, guys. Just fill up the tank. I need as many prayers as I could get. I could say, amen, Paul. I need as many prayers as I can get. He wanted their prayers. Amen? I hope you want each other's prayers. Amen. Third thing, verse 23, and final thing here, and then we'll do a little conclusion. He says, there salute the Epaphras. Remember Epaphras from Colossians? He was that good brother that probably helped the church get formed there. There salute the Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. Marcus, Aristarchus, Demas, Lucas, my fellow laborers, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. You know what the last thing he does in the letter is? It's the last thing he wanted to do. Paul wanted to pick these believers up. He salutes them. He's encouraging them. He's edifying them. He's saying, Tell these, give these guys a slap on the back for me. Give these guys a pat on the back for me. Tell them, Paul says, I miss you. I want to see you. You're doing a great job. Salute means to hail or honor somebody, right? You salute a superior officer as a show of respect. And Paul's saying, show these guys some love because he's trying to pick them up. Paul wanted others to know he loved them and he was thinking of them. See, it's all full of names. It's not just doctrine, it's names. Marcus, Aristarchus, Demas, you know, Epaphras. They're people because the ministry's people, as Pastor Mel said. So he's saying, encourage these people. Pick these people up. Verse 23, he salutes Epaphras, that fellow prisoner, that one that probably is the reason that church at Colossae was there because he was praying and ministering and trying to get those people established that they might stand perfect in all the will of God. And then verse 23, he honors some other fellow laborers. I wonder to myself and of you, do you encourage others by letting them know how important they are to you? You know, I tried, probably didn't do a good enough job reaching out to Fiona, but I would try, I got all these emails from her back and forth, let her know I was thinking of her and that, you know, I, I couldn't wait to see her and I understood a little bit of what she was going through, you know, and it, it grieves me that I didn't tell her more. Like, do you want life to slip by and you didn't tell the people along your way just like, I appreciate you. I thank God for you. Paul did it. How many times? I thank God for thee. I thank God for thee. He says it right there in verse number four. I thank my God, making mention of thee always in my prayers. You want life to pass you by and you never told anybody that they were special to you? Especially the ones in the Lord? I'm not just talking about your kids and your spouse. I'm talking about like the, the Christians that have like paved your way. I, I think we need more of this, brethren. I think we mean more of this as day approaching. I know we're so right in our doctrine, we sometimes get hard and wrong in our practice. It's okay to love on each other and say, I appreciate you, brother. I appreciate you, sister. I think you're doing a good job. I, I thank God for you. Paul did it. Don't be afraid of puffing anybody up. They're already puffed up if they're puffed up. You're not going to puff anybody up. They've already puffed themselves up 20,000 times before you said a word. But you just saying, I appreciate you, Maybe that might make a wayward child think twice before they run away. Maybe that will make a wayward Christian think twice before hopping out of the church, that they know some people there love them and think they're special. Because the world will make them feel special. You better believe it. They'll make them feel special. They'll say, come on, man. Come on, honey. Let's go. They'll make them feel so special. They should never feel more special than they do feel in church. You say, that sounds soft. No, we're too hard. We're too hard. I see Paul at the end of his life in jail, just, he's a bit of a softy. Just let each other know that you appreciate one another. You know, you love on one another. You, 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 you have those kind words for one another. You know why? It'll encourage somebody. You know, it'll encourage them. And that's what Paul's trying to do. He's trying to pick them up, not just bash them down. We're quick to bash. The baseball bat's always behind the back. The minute you step out of line, it's like, oh man, here you go, you know. A book, chapter, and verse, you know, we're ready to do it, but we're not ready to be as sweet as we are to be bitter and hard. Why not? There's something wrong with our heart. That's not the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God says, hey, good job, son. Keep going. I love you. 
Not, you, you fool, you idiot, what's wrong with you? You messed up again. That's not the Spirit of God. That's, that's, that's the devil. That's Shane. That's the accuser. That's not the comforter. Isn't the Holy Spirit the comforter? I thought he was called the comforter. Somewhere in John we talked about that, right? All right, let me finish up here. All right, two quick thoughts out of the book. Stay right there in Philemon. First thought out of the book. This little book, number one, is an amazing analogy of our soul's redemption. And if you get nothing else, get this. Consider the picture. Philemon, right? Philemon, he pictures the Father. He pictures God. You know why? Because he's the master of all our souls. (laughs) He says in Ezekiel, all souls are mine, right? He's the one that gave us that soul. So he pictures God. And Onesimus, he pictures the sinner. What has he done? He's run away from his master. He's taken the most precious thing and stolen it from God, the soul. (laughs) Bible says, you know, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? (laughs) The soul is more precious than anything. Bible calls it a darling. It's like a, a jewel, a precious thing. And you took it. God wants it to be his, and you've taken it. You robbed God of the most precious thing on earth. Forget the black diamond. It's the soul. Onesimus is the sinner. Robbed and run away from his master. And then Paul. Paul is the Savior. He's the one that is a partner with the Father and a refuge from the law that we've broken. See verse 17? There it is again. If thou count me therefore a partner, receive him as myself. So Paul pictures Jesus Christ. He's partner with the Father and he's a refuge from the law. So what does this all mean? That in Christ, now watch this, in Christ, are you in Christ? Amen. All right, that means you're saved. That's what the Bible talks about being saved. If you're not in Christ, we'll show you how to get in Christ tonight. But if you're in Christ, the Bible says you're saved. That's the way you want to be. You don't need to be in this church. You need to be in Christ. You don't need to be in this building. You need to be in Christ. We've got Christians that meet in fields, but they're in Christ. We've got Christians that meet in caves, but they're in Christ. We've got Christians that are in prisons all over the world, but you know what they are? That's safe. They're in Christ. In Christ, you're safe. In Christ, you're sealed. In Christ, you're signed and sealed and delivered. So if you're in Christ, the sinner is made a son. In Christ, the sinner is made a son, and he finds out that not only as a savior, he has an, inter- he has an intercessor. He's got somebody up there praying for him. He's got God who's not now the offended stranger. He now becomes a father. That all happens when you are in Christ. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. And you know what happens when you get in Christ? You are received by God. That's the key word of the book, received. You're received by God, not as a slave anymore, not as a servant anymore, but as a son. See, when God looks at you, he doesn't see slaves or servants. He sees a son. If he sees you in Christ, if not, you're lost. That's the first really big thought, is the picture of our salvation. But secondly, and here's my last idea here, this little book is an amazing, not just analogy, it's an amazing analogy of our soul's redemption. That's one. Second big idea, this little book is an amazing admonition for your life's redemption. It's an analogy of your soul's redemption, but it's an an admonition, a, a charge to redeem your life. Consider not just the picture, but consider how practical this book is. Verse 10. I beseech thee for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds, which in time past was to thee unprofitable, and now profitable to thee and to me, whom I have sent again now therefore receive him, that is, mine own bowels. Please notice the Bible doesn't waste any time fighting for social justice. He sends Onesimus back to his master. How's that? We'd be calling up some of the news and being like, look at this guy, Philemon, look at this guy. Let's just, I can't be-. No, he says, listen, that guy, you, you work for that guy, you go back to that guy. Right? So the Bible doesn't waste any time with that. Stop wasting your time and all the stuff the world says is important. All the causes and the stuff, there's maybe some noble ventures in them, but that, God says that's not the biggest deal. It's not a big, you know why it's not a big deal? 
that Onesimus goes back as a servant to Philemon? Because verse 9, Yet for love's sake I rather beseech thee, being such an one as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. You know why it's not a big deal that he goes back to being a servant? Because we all serve somebody. You were all a slave to sin before, and now you're supposed to be a servant to Christ. So we all serve someone. You were a slave to sin. Now go be a servant to God. No big deal. Nobody's ever really free. There is no freedom, just a choice of bondage. You were a servant to sin. Now you could be a servant to God. That's why you tell him, oh, no, go run away, Onesimus. Go, you know, go over here. Go. No, no, no. He says just go back to him, be a good servant, and he'll be a good master. That rubs the sensibilities, I know, but that's just what the Bible, that's their perspective. And you know what he says right there? You know what the thought is? You change your world by changing one soul at a time for Jesus Christ. Not by campaigns, not by social issues, not by changing Congress people, not by voting the bums out. You know how you change the world around you? Change one soul at a time. When you find yourself next to Onesimus, lead that Onesimus to Christ. That world changed. That's how you change the world. One soul at a time. Just try to get as many people to Jesus and see what happens. That's Philemon. So thank you for being here tonight, and hopefully you get something out of that. Let's pray. Lord, we love you.